This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Bonnie Christian, so great to have you back. Thanks for being here. 
Yeah, it's great to be here. We're talking about a new book of yours. It's called Untrustworthy, The Knowledge Crisis, Breaking Our Brains, Polluting Our Politics, and Corrupting Christian Community. Did you write this book from a transcript of my own thoughts from 2016 to 2022? (laughs) It might be really surprising to people given sort of like my thoughts on privacy and not putting the internet in everyone's brains all the time, but I do actually have an extensive in-brain surveillance network, including of you. So, okay. Well, at least it's, I'm sorry, this is how you had to find out. I'm just glad that those uh, swirling anxious thoughts can be of some benefit to somebody. So way back at the beginning of you have permission, I interviewed you for, I want to call it a wonderful little book. I'm calling it little because it's not very long. It's very easy to read. It's very compactly written. That book's called a flexible faith. That book was about the variety of positions that Christians throughout the ages of the church have taken and currently take on all kinds of issues. I'm curious what the connection is in your mind between that book and this book, which is about our knowledge crisis, our epistemological crisis in the West. I think in terms of themes, the big overlap has got to be a degree of humility about what we think we know. We all believe that everything that we believe is right, and that's the, sort of just the state of things. You would believe something different if you came to think that what you believed was wrong. There's a lot of people in the world, and we believe conflicting things. And um, as much as, on the one hand, I want to say that, yes, there are objective truths out there, and we can know the truth, and we can have like a firm foundation of beliefs that you know really form a core of our lives. At the same time, there has to be, I think, room for the, the thought in our heads that I don't know everything. I might be confused about some things. And I think that's uh, that's true in theology. And that was where the, the first book of Flexible Faith went. And then for this one, it's about the only more uh, confusing and chaotic environment, which is uh, politics. So you decided to ask David French to write the foreword to your book. That was itself kind of a political choice because he's a political pundit. I like David French. I don't agree with David French on everything, but the reason that I trust him is that he has had to break from his community because he told the truth and he did not cater to Trumpism, essentially. And so he got he got edged out, I believe, of National Review and started his own thing called The Dispatch. And he is acting and writing and thinking in good faith. And you might agree or disagree with him, but I find in the media landscape, there are a handful of institutions where the incentive structures are such that they really don't want to get things wrong. Because if they do, it costs them a shit ton of money. So I would put the New York Times and, and Washington Post and some of these legacy newspapers in that category. But numerically, there are far more of these organizations, channels, personalities whose incentives are actually not to be accurate, but their incentives are to be popular, to get clicks, to get listens. And I don't think that that's how David French is operating. So even if I don't agree with all of his analysis, I trust him with with information. Is that related to why you wanted to work with him? Did you have other reasons? Have you had pushback on that? I'm curious. 
Well, I haven't gotten a huge amount of pushback yet. I would say that I likewise, you know, have have real disagreements with him. The the really obvious point of disagreement, and I've never like discussed this with him, but um, is foreign policy. Like we are miles apart on foreign policy. Um, yeah. He follows me on Twitter, and I, I write about foreign policy fairly regularly. And I'm sure he just scrolls right past all that stuff <laughs> <laughs> because we have some pretty significant disagreements there. He has stood out among a lot of right of center pundits for. Yeah basically holding to the the sort of like character counts perspective that you think about with like 1990s evangelicals where in the last six eight years it's been a major theme of like you told us that character mattered more than political victories and now you're saying the opposite david french feels very much like one of those old school evangelicals and he he hasn't moved on that subject and i think that's rare and admirable you know even if you again don't agree with all of the policy implications he gets from that. He has held fast on that in a time when it wasn't easy to hold fast on that. As far as picking him for the forward, I had actually already reached out to him for an interview for one of my chapters, sort of like as a expert evangelical voice on the subject. Um, And so we had done that. And then just a few days later, like while I was working on that chapter, my publisher emailed me and was like, hey, do you think, do you know any way to get in touch with David Friend? Do you, we think he could be great for this. <laughs> and so then I had to go Do back I and ever? be like, hey, yeah. David, so uh, <laughs> would you be interested in doing something else for me? Um, and he, he very graciously said yes. That's cool. Yeah, I think the through line between the two books, and I think I see it in, in David's work, is intellectual humility. You can't have infinite intellectual humility or else you just don't believe anything at all. It's yeah. it's about finding that golden mean what, between certainty on one hand and complete, you know, chaos, ideological anarchy on the other. Like, I don't know anything. What's mm-hmm. what's that ground of like, OK, I I have good reasons for this. I have fewer reasons for that. But it's not comfortable. It's not a comfortable place to be. And that's why we don't like to spend time there psychologically. If I was going to, for instance, listen to a 60 minute interview between like. R.C. Sproul and Matt Chandler or something like that, right? Like these old conservative voices that I am not that interested in anymore. I would have to steal myself. I would have to basically uh, the way the way <laughs> I, if I had to listen to that for homework or something, I would be like, OK, I'm going to get a McDonald's hot fudge sundae <laughs> and chicken nuggets. And that's that's how I'm going to get myself to do this. That's my reward for listening to 60 minutes of this. It would be physically uncomfortable for me to like spend time in that space. That's really fucking interesting psychologically. If you're trying to think about, well, how would you ever come to change your mind? If it mm-hmm. is painful to hear people who disagree with you, it's difficult to do it, but we've got to have, we have to figure out ways to have some intellectual humility, if not, you know, loads of it. I think one thing that helps with that is sort of like narrowing the the topics on which you're going to do that kind of engagement, right? Because if it is really that difficult, and a lot of times it is, like if it is that difficult, you're only going to be able to do it with a select number of topics so that number one, it's things you know really well, so that if you are hearing something, hearing an argument, you actually have like some background knowledge to be able to measure that fairly and say like, 
is the argument, you know, maybe I, even I disagree with it, but are they making this on a factual basis? Like, like, are, does one point follow the other, that sort of thing. And also, I think if you're, if you're able to limit the number of topics that you're going to really know well, and, you know, really practice that humility, it, it lets you have an investment in it. Like it gives you a purpose for like, okay, I need to sit down and listen to this um, as opposed to just rage quitting in the middle. Right. Which if you're trying to do a little bit of everything and it's very shallow and you just want like an opinion on every subject, you're, you're not going to be able to sit down and commit to listening to those voices that frustrate you so much because you, you don't have a good reason for it. Um, and so it's just going to result in like, like a dangerously small amount of knowledge and a lot of anger all the time. I love that. But all that to say, I do trust David French. I trust him factually, even if I don't Mm -hmm. agree with all his analysis. And he, I think, gives a very good encapsulation in the foreword of the book about what's going on. Quote, we live in a nation full of citizens who claim to distrust institutions, yet seem to place almost blind faith in those institutions and individuals who reaffirm their worldview. End quote. Anything you'd like to elaborate on that incredible <laughs> sentence? It sort of gets back to what you alluded to before about like how traditional media, big outlets like the Washington Post, New York Times, CNN, and I don't even include like Fox News in this, places like this, they have some accountability structures. Like they issue corrections when they get things wrong. And maybe it's, you know, too little, too late. Maybe it takes right. too much prodding. Maybe it takes threat of a lawsuit. But generally speaking, they issue corrections when they say something that is demonstrably factually wrong. And part of that is out of like a journalistic regard for truth. And part of that is out of not wanting to lose all that money in a lawsuit. And so even though there are a lot of criticisms that you can make about traditional media, and I would and do, I I do think there are real problems in the industry right now. Many of the independent, totally random people (laughs) rising up online to replace them, as much as their criticisms are fair, they're not better. The work that they're doing is not better and they lack because they tend to be very small and very slippery, maybe pseudonymous. It's difficult to hold them to those same accountability measures, however inadequate they may be. Like at least they're there with traditional media with just some random person on Twitter, you know, not even posting under their real name. You don't have any of that. And so just because the the old model is bad, that doesn't make the new model better. And what you have, as, as he describes, is a lot of people who are very suspicious of these older institutions. And again, sometimes with good reason, but where they're putting their trust instead is worse. I think in many cases, it's a, it's really like a naive thing. Like people truly don't see that contradiction of saying, I don't trust these guys. They're all lying to you for profit. I trust these guys and I buy their supplements too. Right. <laughs> I love, I love that idea that like what we often replace it with is not better. In content. It's like, it's not to say there aren't problems to use maybe like (laughs) a slightly polarizing politics example, like to say that Hillary Clinton should not have had an unsecured email server while secretary of state, like (laughs) she shouldn't have. That's also not the same thing as physically removing classified documents and taking them to your house. Right. But what we've gotten to in our soundbite culture it's not just sound bites. It's also our tribal loyalties and, and all of that. What we've gotten to is a place where everything becomes equivocated so easily. And so we lose the nuance between things that are similar, but not equally egregious. And it's the mm-hmm. same thing. Well, I don't look at foxnews.com anymore. Now I get my stuff from, 
you know, Infowars or Newsmax.com or whatever. And it might look kind of similar. And you might think, well, I I trust these guys more. But actually, those guys have fewer checks and balances than FoxNews.com. And Fox News, the cable channel, has fewer checks and balances than the journalism website that they run. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's just these levels of incentives and distrust. It is legitimately confusing. You know, you mentioned for some people, like, they look similar. And that's true. And I've had conversations with older relatives where they're, like, showing me some article they read online that's made up. Or maybe it's on one of these sites that, you know, they have a tiny little about page somewhere that says, we're satire. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. It looks the same. You start off with, like, legitimate critiques of the old institutions, something that looks very similar and is telling you something that you feel should be true. You don't have, like, the digital literacy to tell the difference. You don't have the time to figure out the difference, right? Like most people are not going to even, you distinguish, and I would also distinguish between like Fox News that plays on TV and foxnews.com where they're doing like pretty typical reporting type stuff. Right. Um, most people are not going to make those distinctions, don't have time to make those distinctions. And so it's very easy to start away, start with like sort of a, a healthy skepticism and then end up believing just absolutely crazy stuff with no basis in reality. When we talk about distrust of these institutions, my sense is that there are at least two causes of that distrust. Some of it is organic. So institutions failing the American people in the modern era, people tend to start with like Watergate and Vietnam, right? So Hmm. Nixon is kind of an early fulcrum of all of this of like, oh, he's just fully lying. And like we found these secret tapes where we heard the truth. And, you know, in some sense, like, yeah, JFK was probably also lying to the American people. Like politicians lie. They they have tremendous message control and they spin things and they do that. And so, OK, that's helpful. But there are also real consequences to that when you can't really trust news institutions. Another source, though, of distrust is manufactured distrust. So some people mm-hmm. who are entrepreneurial, they pick up on this distrust. That's and a, they find a out that flattering just. Dist- of it. <laughs> yeah, entrepreneurial. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Entrepreneurial slash evil um, who, who just want to benefit. You know, they, they want to make a buck, either regular capital or social capital, power or money or status. And they figure out that they can double down this stuff. And they, you know, like Alex Jones doing the Sandy Hook false flag. Like there's a chance that he's genuinely believed that. Chance is probably pretty low. I think he saw an opening and he's a shrewd and unscrupulous businessman. And I'm grateful that he actually had to pay millions and millions of dollars for the harm that that caused. That is great. That's a nice incentive to now be placed on other people who might do that kind of disinformation. But like he was not acting in good faith. He figured out that he could make more money and gain more status by pushing these buttons on people. Would you add a third source of mistrust or what do you think? Some of it I would just add is sort of the the sheer quantity of information that is being put out now and our limited attention spans. I think everyone sort of wants politics to be their hobby. And that's the Atlantic had an article about political hobbyism a while back that I thought was quite good. Um, and basically the intention is like people, especially like college educated people, politics is the hobby. And it's something that you just sort of dabble in all the time. And maybe, um, you know, this isn't, a hobby in the sense of like, I'm going to go out and try to organize people around this issue, or I'm going to like try to get something on the ballot, or I'm going to do a petition or something. It's just like, 
posting mainly, arguing on Twitter, knowing a lot about things over which you have no influence. Uh, and I think that 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 hobbyist mindset means that we have this this higher exposure to all of this stuff to to both like the the failures of the institutions, which maybe in in decades past, we a lot of that failure was still there, but sort of maybe happened behind closed doors and they sort of got their act together in public. Whereas now we see how the sausage is made all the time. Yeah. And then, you know, you're, you're also exposed to the people on the other side whose disingenuousness you recognize and maybe you, you do or don't recognize it on your own side. It's overwhelming, I think is a, a big part of it. And so it, that adds to the distrust. It's um, a friend of mine today wrote an article where he likened the way some Trumpy Republicans and pundits behave. He likened it to a denial of service attack where you send a bunch of fake users to a website and it overwhelms the website and it crashes. And so his comparison, he was specifically talking about, I think, like state election boards saying that the, the strategy seems to be they just want to like raise question after question so that the election workers are sort of like overwhelmed with that stuff and are not able to do what they should be doing preparing for the election. But I think it works that way rhetorically as well, whether it's that intentional or not, just like this constant onslaught of claims and ostensibly data browbeats you into, you know, for some people, it's, it produces a fight or flight reaction, right? Some people just become really combative and aggressive and distrustful of the institutions. And some people, as they start to distrust these institutions, just sort of like retreat into fetal position. That influx of information provides, in theory, yeah, like these hobbyists, people who can become kind of amateur pundits and mm-hmm. amateur media experts. And some of them might actually be much more well-informed than they would have been mm-hmm. otherwise, or they would have been 40 years ago or, or whatever. But what is emerging from research on, you know, social media usage, for instance, is like, yeah, but it also sort of interacts with all of these algorithms that these tech companies are incentivized to maximize your time on their platform. And so it's basically all this brain hacking that people are figuring out through trial and error, probably mostly, and figuring out how to keep you on Twitter as long as possible, on Facebook as long as possible, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, on Instagram as long as possible. And if, if, for instance, we were to come up with like best practices for being an informed citizen, which I think would be a, a really great thing to take part in, like I want to be properly informed. Mm-hmm. That is never, never, ever going to align with the profit incentives of a tech company that is feeding you news information. It just never will. I spent a long time at theweek.com and you know, many, all media outlets. The early perspective on things like Facebook and, and Twitter and this sort of thing was like it would be a traffic driver and you know it'd be a place to, way to bring in readers to like the thoughtful things we're publishing. But in recent years and on Facebook especially, they want to increase time on the site, not time off the site, which is where our links would take you. Um, and then they're also, you know, catching heat for spreading polarizing political information. And so what happens, at least in in what I observed, was that, you know, news and commentary links, even quite high quality and factual, tend to not perform very well on Facebook anymore. Right. Because if you're writing something that's like nuanced and thought provoking in a good way, 
if someone clicks on it, then they leave Facebook. That's not what Facebook wants. And they're not going to come back and argue about it in the comments, which is not what Facebook wants. You know, maybe a decade or 15 years ago, there was this idea of like social media is going to be a real boon to traditional media. It's going to be a new way to engage readers. It's going to like provoke this conversation. And that's just extremely not where, where it has gone. For the last uh, three months or so, I initially went off all social media almost entirely, and mm. I have vastly limited it uh, since then, even adding a little bit of Instagram back in and occasionally posting about stuff. But like, man, I'm like 90, 85, 90% down, and I don't know that I'm going back. I mean, it has, yeah. I've been so productive. <laughs> I, I feel <laughs> like my time is being used so much more wisely and helpfully and sort of in alignment with my values. And then one time I looked through like, I was like, okay, I'm going to check out the top 20 articles on Apple News on my phone, and I'm going to figure out how many of these could it plausibly matter that I know at some <laughs> point in the future. And that uh -huh. number was four out of 20. I could, it could maybe matter that I knew that. Yeah, that sounds about right. Full endorsement. I feel like I'm fairly restrained with my own social media use, and uh, my advice is on my chief social media advice is scrolling on Twitter with sort of just a conveniently hidden habit that uh, something that I think about almost probably daily in terms of like, is this out of control? Do I need to do something about this? And I think that's the case for so many people. So in the book, you talk about six sources, uh, these main elements of what's going on here. We're just going to talk about one of them. I don't want to give the book away. We want people to purchase the book if they are interested in it. And after, so we're going to talk about emotions and the role that emotions play in this knowledge crisis. So what is the role of emotions, broadly speaking, in this kind of disinformation epistemological crisis? A major metaphor that I used in that chapter is stolen from uh, Jonathan Haidt who is a social psychologist, an excellent writer, and, and you know he's a researcher himself, so he's not just sort of like parroting other people's uh, science the way I am. Um, but uh, he has this metaphor called uh, the rider and the elephant. And the idea is that uh, humans are like the rider, a rider and an elephant. The, the whole thing, it's, it's not sort of a, a separable thing where one is the true us and, and the other is like some, you know, sort of superficial thing. It's, it's, a, it's a unit. And so the, the writer, he says, is sort of like our rational brain. It's where we tend to make arguments when we want to persuade someone. It's, it's our, our logical thinking. It's our, our conscious decisions. And that is like where, you know, it's where when you write a book, that's primarily where you're aiming. It's where you're trying to persuade people on that level. But the elephant is everything else. It's your emotional inclinations. It's your instincts. It's even how your physical body feels in that moment. Like, do you have a stomach ache? Maybe that makes you less likely to be persuaded. And so what Height says is, you know, you can talk to the writer all day, but if the elephant does not want to walk towards you, the writer's not, not coming. You have to move the elephant as well as the writer. And so when we're talking, thinking about like persuasion and how we acquire knowledge, it's very writer focused, but it really should involve the elephant as well, because that's how people work. That is something I think that people acting in bad faith often tend to understand better than people acting in good faith. I think a lot of the people who are acting in good faith are like, I'm going to go out and I'm going to make this 
reasoned argument and I'm going to be completely factual. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to be intellectually dishonest. And that's going to persuade people. Talking in broad strokes here, but what people like the people we've talked about who have this incentive to profit by, by twisting the truth or by outright lying, what they understand, I think, frequently is that if you can bring along the elephant, if you can enrage people or scare them or, you know, make them identify with you, all of that can be much, much more persuasive than, you know, really factual proof and really well-reasoned arguments because they move the the elephant and then the rider is going along with it and will make up reasons to justify what the elephant is already doing. The importance of emotions is something that is, emotions are really tricky to discuss when we're talking about knowledge because I think we frequently tend to separate them and especially in evangelicalism, which we can get to in a moment. But that was why I thought it was crucial to just sort of have a whole chapter devoted to this issue as something and asking us to think about it a little bit more directly than we often do. So you might have a conservative evangelical, let's call him a man (laughs) for the purposes of this, uh, for the purposes of this example who reads a blog post or sees a meme or whatever, something gets shared with him and that. And the content of that meme is something like liberals listen to their emotions, but real Christians stand on the truth of God's word. Okay. So they are reading something that is telling them that they are not being led by their emotions. Like these other people who have gone astray, they are calm and rational. But what you're saying, and I agree, is that actually what's happening is that meme is not speaking to their writer, to their conscious deliberative self, that meme is probably more likely speaking to their elephant. It's saying you belong. You mm-hmm. are in God's special people group. You You're the smart person. are the smart person. You are no. not the one who's led astray. It's actually appealing at an emotional identity level, even though mm-hmm. ostensibly it is about being unemotional. I think mm-hmm. that's so interesting. It's such an unfortunate situation that we've we've gotten in where those kind of emotional appeals, I do think I see them way more in service of dishonest points and in service of manipulation. Then I, I think there's a, a real lack in just sort of like the discourse, if you will, of people who are skilled in making an emotional appeal like that in a way that's not manipulative and that is toward like good and honest ends. It's difficult because I think that what a lot of people who end up in the media, what they come to believe, and I I don't know how to argue against this, is that what they write and put out there, it really matters that it's factually accurate. This stuff is used in in courts of law. It's used Mm -hmm. as like public record so that like – In the event that we do have to figure something out and we are all willing to use our deliberative writer brains, like it has to exist. You know, it's got to be there in in writing. It's got to be sort of preserved. And yet it doesn't change hearts and minds. And the people who are more effective at changing hearts and minds don't give a shit about the official record. They are just grifting. Or they, mm-hmm. they might even be self-deceived too. By the way, not all grifters have to know that they're yeah. grifting. They can yeah. just be self-deceived like, 
everyone told them their whole life that they were brilliant. Like the My Pillow guy, I think he believes it. The My Pillow guy, right? He yeah, does not. I think he believes it. He's a true believer, probably. Yeah. So it's a rock and a hard place for journalists mm-hmm. and other people who are trying to be professional and responsible. Yeah, and I think it gets it's sort of a, a self perpetuating cycle, right? Because if the only people who are using emotional appeals are using it for bad ends, and if there's this idea that emotion is the opposite of fact then all of the good faith and responsible actors are sort of tying a hand behind their back. They're saying, I'm not going to touch this extremely important thing that is so vital for persuasion, or perhaps even worse, they're not going to recognize the way in which their own behavior and rhetoric is off-putting for people who might be persuadable. I think you see this a lot where it's like, oh, I hate the media elites. They're always looking down on us. You know, they're it's like a cultural difference. And I think a lot of people in the press maybe don't get the way that these elephant signals that they're sending are turning people off who maybe if there weren't that barrier might be open to some of like the more informational content. Yeah. We might want to think that a perfectly executed argument with premises and evidence for them in theory, that should convince anybody who's willing to read it. And and some people like philosophers, maybe lawyers on good days, they <laughs> will do that kind of reasoning and they will be persuaded by it. But most of the time, even for people who can sometimes do that, that's just not the default way that our brains work. We are enmeshed in networks of people and we look to those people and we have varying levels of trust with those people and they look mostly like us. They sound and talk and think mostly like us. And if they are not that way, then we don't feel safe. And we it's like a Maslow's hierarchy thing. We can't function. So that's just the way it is. You might not want it to be that way, but it is that way. And so we just have a, a limited range of persuasion as individuals, anytime our personhood is a, is attached to something that we're saying. To come back to evangelicals and to David French, actually, because this was the chapter that I interviewed him for before reaching out uh, about the forward, evangelicals tend to draw an even sharper boundary than sort of the average American culture between mm. feelings and facts. Despite some really interesting, you know, developments on that front in recent years where there's been a lot more like listen to your heart from especially parts of like the the, the very Trumpy or like the QAnon right, which is a curious thing because they, they somehow managed to combine rejecting emotion and following only emotion at the same time. But I think there is an arguably an even sharper division within that subculture. And so that, if anything, makes it even harder to cross that boundary you're describing and to listen to people from the outgroup because, you know, you have in your mind this idea that you're only listening to facts and that can make you oblivious to the way that emotional appeals, things that put you off, off-putting emotional experiences are affecting your thinking because you're totally unaware of the elephant. And so you, if you envision yourself solely as the rider ignorant of that the elephant is there or convinced that you have mastered the elephant completely, uh, you're going to become that much more vulnerable to uh, its movements and, and that much more unable to sort of guide the elephant and work with the elephant in a conscious way to, to be more deliberate about what you believe and who you listen to. I'll just point listeners back to my conversation with uh, Becky Castle Miller, which uh, mm. delves into more detail 
about sort of the the teachings in evangelicalism about reason and emotion and sort of what those teachings have actually gotten wrong sort of empirically uh, mm-hmm. and how they've tied that to theological claims and stuff. Mm-hmm. What are some traps for those of us on the left? So we are not necessarily giving into the, the, the scare tactics of the Tucker Carlson's of the world. We're maybe not buying into the persecution complex that some of our parents, in-laws, friends have gotten into, what are we more susceptible to in terms of this knowledge crisis? Sure. Well, so you mentioned those those six uh, chapters. When I was writing them, I sort of thought of those as three that I were more focused on problems I saw on the right and three that I saw more on the left. And certainly not, those are not tidy lines, but so the three on the left, um, one is, and I, I recognize how polarizing this is going to be, but one is what's commonly called cancel culture. I don't know if that's even a useful term anymore. And it, and it, it happens on left and right alike. But I, there was a really interesting quote that I ran across one time um, at the American Conservative of all places. And it was something to the effect of the failure mode of the right wing is kook. The failure mode of the left wing is Puritan. Um, and mm. I think that that gets at something key, that there's an impulse on the left right now. You know, maybe it's always there, but maybe it's more suppressed sometimes. You know, it's this idea that it's a failure mode. And I think these are two ex- like mutually exacerbating failure modes, right? Like the wilder one side gets the the more the other side wants to lock down and, and go for like um, ideological and moral purity. And so I do think there is an impulse on the left to really police boundaries of, of who is on the right side of history with us, who is adequately progressive. And in other times, under other circumstances, maybe it wouldn't take the form that we see now. But because we have social media that lets us behave in these mobbish ways online, I think a lot of that behavior that maybe could have taken place at sort of like an interpersonal level before because you simply wouldn't have heard about what many people are hearing about right now. Oh yeah. Tech, the technology tie-in is huge. Yeah. Now it can take place in these big online mobs where you have thousands, tens of thousands, millions of people getting very worked up over situations where there is, you know, maybe some real offense, but it's not like a criminal offense and it doesn't really have anything to do with them. And, you know, this is something that I thought through like the idea of, how am I harmed if someone did something offensive online or, you know, they were filmed doing something offensive and was put online? Like, I can't, I don't think I could demand that they apologize to me because they didn't do anything to me. But there's this sense of like, you violated the purity of our group and, and you've crossed our moral boundaries. And so we need to come after you and tell you exactly how wrong you are and maybe make you lose your job. And so as as fraught as that conversation is, I do think that there is a, a real puritanism happening in a way that the desire for purity can overtake the desire for truth. I tend to think that there is some psychological naivety on the left mm-hmm. about the modes of psychology that are being utilized around this kind of puritanical impulse. Like, I think that people are unaware that maybe their disgust psychology module is being activated. Mm-hmm. Uh, this person should be expelled from the group. This is unclean. Um, mm-hmm. And that's actually an argument that I use for LGBTQ inclusion is I mm-hmm. think that we should actually 
be very careful about things that activate our disgust psychology and like the kind of sex that we don't want to have very much activates our disgust psychology. Sex is, it's very tangible. It's very physical. It gets in these places we don't normally look, you know, it's, it's like wet. I mean, sorry, (laughs) hopefully that's not gross for people, but like, you know what I mean? It involves like this very kind of in the dark, like, and, and so if it's something like that, we don't find attractive Someone who has no interest in androgyny can find a drag queen really offensive at like a visceral level, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think we actually have to control for our disgust psychology. It got us here. You know, thank God for it. We did, you know, our species survived and didn't like eat open animal wounds. So we didn't die. (laughs) Like it's really useful. Yeah, Yeah, it's useful Mm -hmm. that disgust psychology, but it's also really tied in with like, hate crime and inter-ethnic violence. And, you know, think about Nazi Germany and calling Jews rats and, and sort of rats are disgusting, right? So it's like, I sometimes think that the left is not careful. We're not careful about things that activate our disgust psychology. Because it's seen as a right-wing thing. Yes. Yeah. 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 And I mean, I mentioned Jonathan Haidt already. He has these, um, this moral foundations theory, which he's really well known for. And basically the short version is that there's, I think it's like six different moral values. And generally speaking, people who are politically conservative value them all roughly equally. And people who are politically progressive value just two or three things like uh, fairness and care for the vulnerable. And one of the things that he says conservatives tend to value more than progressives is sanctity or purity. Yep. And I think in a lot of things, that's true. And like the example that you went to, you can see how that plays out in politics uh, around LGBTQ stuff. But I think there is, and you know, we could also make a case that we've seen some of this with pandemic stuff. Mm-hmm. There is a version of that on the left. And I think it's less recognized because it doesn't fit the stereotype, but it's not like you become a Democrat and you lose, you know, that sort of that basic disgust impulse that right. you were describing. Your brain does not rewire itself. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and also people, you know, there's a lot of hay is made about, yeah. So conservatives have all five of the main foundations, liberals have mm-hmm. mostly these two and less of the mm-hmm. others. And libertarians have a lot of the sixth one, which is liberty. Um, mm-hmm. But nobody has zero. Like, it's not yeah. like, like if you take this test, like you might get a 40 out of 60 on care mm-hmm. and a 20 out of 60 on purity or something. Yeah. And maybe that 20 is really concentrated on two or three things. And right. so even though you, you know, you don't have that response to a lot of stuff, you have it very intensely on a few things, but don't recognize it as that because it doesn't sort of fit you know, yourself, even if you don't know this theory, it just doesn't, it's not how we think about the left a lot. I think, I mean, even the idea of like, don't be a Puritan that usually if you say something like that, it's about like, don't insist on having abstinence, only sex education, less about the body and more about what's happening in the brain. The, the policing language, pronoun stuff, not just pronoun stuff, but like updated terminology stuff is, is sticky because it can often be pursued in good faith so as to make people who have had tough lives feel loved and included. And I think that's a very good reason to do anything, frankly. And especially in a one-on-one setting, like if I have a client who tells me their pronouns, like I will use them, of course, because what are we here for? We're here to do therapy. We're not here to litigate the pronoun culture wars, right? But there's also a version of it where I think it's like, 
if you turn language into the primary moral battleground, then not only have you gotten yourself off the hook for having to actually make any sacrifices in your life, other than maybe the amount of doing the quote work of reading, you know, keeping up on the blog posts that tell you which la- which words to use. Okay, that's something. It's not running a fucking soup kitchen. Uh, it's it's a little bit of something, but I think that that kind of like it can be a signal on the left mm-hmm. that like, oh, I am guys, I'm very pure. Like I use, mm-hmm. I have fully updated terminology as of last week, you know, and I'm not going to say the wrong term anymore. Then that can become a kind of a runaway train culturally that then someone in the middle or someone on the right looks at that and they go, what the fuck are you guys talking about? How could that possibly be a good use of your time? Now, if it's just them and their neighbor who says, hey, I'd really love it if you could call me he instead of she anymore. I've transitioned like that is different. And that is one on one. And it is about showing someone care and respect. But when it's just a signaling public thing, it's just on Twitter or it's just in our emails in our company or something. That's where I think we can kind of have a blind spot on the left. Yeah, I mean, I think you see this a lot with like a a company will announce like oh we're all going to do our pronouns now but we're not going to give our workers a raise like there are things that you could do that would be a lot more concrete and i think a lot of sort of more economics and class focused leftists have have levied that critique really effectively against some of their peers on the left who are who are really focused on the language and spending time that they could be spending like materially improving people's lives and then the the other effects that i think it has that makes conversation so much harder. I told a story in the book that Russell Moore, who's now the editor-in-chief at Christianity Today, he had spoken with a young man who was terrified of being canceled. And he talked to him and said that he found out that this kid wasn't saying anything offensive. He was just really afraid that he might say something and then would later find out that it had become offensive. And I, I know people who have a similar mentality, like I have a friend who's worried about things being screenshotted in texts and then somehow it becomes offensive or it's taken out of context. And like people shouldn't have to worry about that sort of thing. Like that's just, that's so poisonous to having reasonable conversations with people. You you can't actually act in good faith if you're constantly yeah. worried about something being excerpted. Frankly, the podcast format has been a nice kind of buffer around mm. that for me because if people are really going to disagree with me, they're not going to listen to 75 minute long episode, right? <laughs> yeah. They're not going to put that much very time dedicated. in. Yeah. So we'll see if I start writing books or something, then that will be harder to to do. But so I I just want to ask you broadly, what role do you think the epistemological crisis plays in this larger phenomenon of the evangelical church just massively hemorrhaging young people? And I want to be super clear and say this is not only a generational thing. There are totally people of every age who are in epistemic crisis. But the most common format of this story that I hear is very much like the story that you hear about a lot of departures from evangelicalism, which is, you know, about my parents raised me to believe X, and now it all seems like it was a lie. And so similarly, the the most common format of this story that I encounter with friends online and research is people who are, you know, roughly my my peers, people who are younger adults saying that they their parents have have fallen into these very misleading, deceptive 
uh, information environments and they no longer recognize them and that you know every conversation is about some conspiracy theory or another and they're they're unable to have like a normal relationship because everything turns to politics or media or who's lying about what and so i think that again it's not only a generational thing but but there is some research that indicates that you're the the demographic that's most correlated with sharing false information online is age and that cuts across political boundaries and so I do think that there is a significant phenomenon of people looking at a epistemically confused older relative who was probably a parent who was their introduction to the church and thinking, well, you know, if they're fooled by all of this stuff, if they find Alex Jones convincing, why should I believe what they think about Jesus? I think I tend to place a lot of explanatory power in the failure of discipleship, maybe of mm -hmm. that generation, which is, you know, there is an intellectual epistemic element of that, you know, maybe innocent as doves, shrewd as serpents, mm -hmm. but mostly we think of discipleship as like moral character formation, where mm -hmm. it's like, you would hope that when presented with a story of harm, like mm -hmm. children being separated at the border from their parents or something, you would hope that their character is formed enough that their heart would kind of break and that that would cause them to at least break ranks on that issue or something. And that, mm -hmm. that's true. I mean, that, that stuff is at play, but there's maybe something like straight up neurological and sociological that like boomers and greatest generation, silent generation don't have the same media literacy skills like just at like a information processing level, whereas more digital natives like ourselves and younger, we can spot things. It's, it's like we learned, it's like we're bilingual. We were raised with two languages and they weren't. And that's not really a moral issue. I don't even like mm -hmm. admitting it because I prefer to kind of blame them morally, but that's, <laughs> that's helpful. And, and that's yeah. kind of a unique contribution to my own thought on this. I do think you mentioned bilingual. I do think it is very much like a second culture where it being like the internet and the digital world in that sense where, you know, if you, if you said to someone who is from another country, if they said, what's it like to be an American or they said, what is American culture? Like, it would be very hard to sit down and say like, here's American culture, like to just communicate that in like a linear verbal way you would say, well, you, you need to come here. You need to just see what it's like. And the problem with this is, so you want to say to people who don't have much digital literacy, you need to come here. You need to see what it's like. You need to sort of like develop that feel for like what is real on the internet. So that when you come to one of these, you know, whether completely fake or, or just like garbage, low standards news websites, you sort of instinctively think, oh, something's a little wrong here. I should be a little skeptical. But the problem is, coming here and doing that is itself risky because you it's not it's not just another culture it's not just another country it's an information environment that like the the very process of becoming acclimated can get you into exactly the kind of trouble that you want to avoid one of the things that i've found very persuasive is bringing in the concept of parallel institutions so mm -hmm. this being one of the defining aspects of white evangelical Protestantism from the 80s on is that it was numerically big enough and infrastructurally 
sophisticated enough that we could have parallel versions of all these institutions, forms Your of media, own TV channel, yeah, mm-hmm. TV channel, radio, uh, records, movies, books, bookstores. Mm-hmm. You know, you can live. Most of your life, I mean, sport, if, if you're in the South and the Bible Belt and Midwest, sports leagues, right? Of mm-hmm. course, Christian schools, you could send your kids mm-hmm. to Christian colleges, Bible colleges. So in that sense, I think that based on my experience with those materials growing up in that world, my hunch is that spending a lot of time with those parallel materials actually primes people to not be as media literate because effectively a lot of those resources were entrepreneurial informational upstarts. They were like kind of fringe people who wanted to like travel around evangelical high schools and speak. These are not people getting sort of like careful journalism uh, jobs or getting signed by regular publishing houses to write books. These are people who write books in their garages. They print them off. They get donations because it's a gospel activity. And then they print more copies and give them out. Like the way that those environments were set up was not conducive to careful thinking and sort of like double checking things. And so conspiracy theories I think you kind of got primed for those if you're like into Bill Gothard and focus on the family and who knows. What do you think about that? You mentioned conspiracy theories, and I, I do think that there is a unique situation there. And I quoted in the book uh, Ed Stetzer. He's an evangelical pastor and author and like follows everyone remotely evangelical on Twitter. <laughs> That's like how I first came across. I was like, how could this guy follow literally everyone? He's former editor of Christianity Today. Yeah. Yes. He had a interview with uh, 538, the like statistics focused news site last year where he said Christians can be in some cases more vulnerable to conspiracism because, quote, people of faith believe that there is a divine plan, that there are forces of good and forces of evil at work in the world. Um, And he added, QAnon is a train that runs on tracks that religion has already put in place. Um, And now, obviously, you know, he's I don't think at all suggesting that that religion is therefore bad. Right. No, he's a practicing Um, that faith is bad. But like that, the way that a lot of this stuff works does fit really neatly on top of, and and I think in many cases intentionally so, it it just fits really neatly on top of beliefs that Christians already hold. Again, in some cases that is on purpose, but it can be difficult to to see that when you're the person buying into it because it just, it makes sense. You know, it all, it just, it fits together. I've heard it called magical thinking, you know, that that's Mm -hmm. possibly a through line here. That if you are a person of like daily piety, you know, mm-hmm. that you basically are like open to the agency of God, uh, you're open to like finding like somewhat more hidden reasons for things. Mm-hmm. It might be the way that you make meaning out of events in your life. Like, I think that God mm-hmm. wanted me to read or hear that or experience mm-hmm. that. And that is correlated with all kinds of very good outcomes for people mm-hmm. and some bad ones, but like, It can be both things can be true that like being religious makes you more susceptible to conspiracy theories and that being religious makes you a happier and more productive member of society. They can both be true and that you have to. And so religious people have to be more careful not to slip into that kind of a thing. And maybe someone who's very irreligious and unlikely 
to yield the benefits of spirituality is very unlikely to become a conspiracy theory nut job. Okay, well, that's one of the benefits of being non-spiritual. Just because something is linked to being religious or the way that the religious mind works does not mean it's all bullshit, but it might be the kind of thing that we ought to control for. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, well, I would say two things to that. One is that it's been really interesting with QAnon in particular, as like the movement has gotten more attention to see people who are not coming from religious contexts, both as observers and as people who have gotten involved. Um, in some cases, it takes very like religion-like forms. And to see them saying like, whoa, this is like a religion, the way that some people end up sort of mimicking religion just without a God. And then, you know, observers just watching it and, and their minds are blown. And it's like, yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's a format that works for a reason. Having community like that is sort of a proven approach to doing things. The other thing is, I'm sure you've read Charles Taylor's A Secular Age. I've not read it. I've read some of it and I've talked with people okay. about it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So he talks about like, and in, I think the word he uses, it, you used the word magical. He, the word he uses is enchanted. And the mm -hmm. idea is that you see the world as an enchanted place where there are like spiritual influences doing things. And I, you know, like when I read that book and looked at my own mindset, like as much as like, I am a Christian. I do think God works in the world. I do think that there are spiritual forces at work in the world. Like, if I'm honest, my default mindset is very much not enchanted. It's it's very disenchanted. Same. You know, I look at, like, some of the people in my family, some of the people I've gone to church with, and they have that much more enchanted mindset in a way that is, I think, so rare in our society outside of especially conservative Christian circles anymore. And it's not a bad religion. thing. Yep. Yeah, it's not a bad thing. Like a lot of times really good things come out of seeing the world that way. Um, and there are times when I look at myself and think like, like, should I try to get some of that back? Like, am I too thoroughly disenchanted, right? You do but... have a link to my thoughts. You do have a, a running transcript. Go on. Yeah, but... I don't know how, I don't know that you can bring that back. And I also yeah. don't know, I think if, if you've reached a point of adulthood where you still have an enchanted mindset, like if you don't lose that when you're sort of like going through your early 20s, it's probably not going to go away. And so I think it's very difficult. Like they have enchanted elephants, if you will, right? Like they, they, it, yeah. the, the whole framework of their thinking is not going to shift. It does sort of see those connections and um, interpretations. And that's both an advantage and, as you said, a vulnerability. Well, let's talk about ways forward. Let's end with some uh, po pointing our eyes uh, to the horizon. So you talked about basically one strategy is narrowing the topics of engagement where you are specifically challenging yourself epistemologically. If everybody who sends you, hey, you should listen to this or read this, if you try and do that with everything someone might send you, are you just going to be flooded? Basically, like, are you not going to be able to perform? Is it like trying to turn a lawnmower on too many times without letting the engine dry out, you know? Yeah, I think we have this idea that we can be political omnivores and we just can't do it. I mean, I do this myself, like in my my writing about politics, like as a journalist, I do not write on, on every issue. And I consider myself, a, you know, a generalist in a lot of ways. But for example, if you try to find writing from me about, I don't know, immigration, abortion, 
environmental policy. Like these are all big things. I don't deny that they're important. I think they are important. I don't know much about them. And I don't think I have much to add to those conversations that other people haven't already said like better than I would and with more personal knowledge and expertise than I would and and more personal experience than I would have. And so you can maybe find, I don't know, maybe one article in a decade on each of those subjects. Like it's very, very little because those are just not topics that I have chosen, at least for the foreseeable future to be well-informed about. They're not in my wheelhouse. And if I do this for a living and need to have a limited wheelhouse, like how much more does someone who does not do this for a living and has like another job and other commitments and priorities in your life need to have a wheelhouse? And so what I recommend in the book, and I, you know, I think this will vary a little bit, honestly, maybe pick like up to half a dozen news topics that you are going to follow and pay attention to and actually know well, and that you're willing to like read whole books about, not just articles that are, you know, show up in your newsfeed. Um, and then everything else, pretty much ignore it. Like, like you said, maybe when it's time to vote, you do like some quick scans here and there, get the rough gist of things, maybe see what like other people you know and trust, whether in your life or like commentators or whoever are saying about that. But but in terms of like the day-to-day, when you don't have some concrete action to take, just don't follow the rest of the stuff. And I know that it that can be difficult to say like, you know, you're just going to ignore environmental issues when it like affects our whole planet. Well, yeah, I am because I don't know about it and there's nothing I can do or say about it. And I have other things that are also really important that I'm spending my time on. Um, And it is okay to prioritize like that and recognize that like you're finite and you cannot know everything about everything. And the world will be no different because of you limiting that. Like it wasn't like they were going to solve the environment if I was paying attention to it and now we're screwed. Like it's it's not going to matter. Yeah. I think that there's a distinction there between actions that line up with your values and becoming a lay expert in something, Mm -hmm. right? Like if you, if your value is actually really care about the environment Well, then spend a little bit of time and figure out, like, what are your best practices going to be for you and your household? But you can actually probably do that in about four or five hours of reading Mm -hmm. and then Mm -hmm. set some things in place and then leave it and do that for five years. And Mm -hmm. like, honestly, that's the best use of that five hours. And you don't need to read every new book that comes out. You know, if that's your one of your issues, great. Mm -hmm. If you want to be informed about it cool. Like my wife is very up on zero waste, Mm. you know, type of movement, but that's Mm -hmm. one of her two things, two or three things that she's picked. And then I don't read anything about it. (laughs) And I say, okay, what are we doing now? Okay, great. I'll do that with you because, because it is a value of mine. I don't Mm -hmm. disagree with her about wanting to reduce our waste. Like we drive an electric vehicle. I love driving it. I also like saving the money on gas it's all great. It's all gravy. It lines up with my values, but I didn't do a ton of research on it. Right. Um, mm-hmm. but I feel good about it. And, and, mm-hmm. uh, we got solar panels installed, right? Like oh, nice. you can do things and that does matter, but that's like a yeah. one-time thing. That's an action. It's not yeah. a constant drip of information with mm-hmm. like diminishing, you know, returns on your actions, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's a big distinction in my mind is between yeah. information and behaviors that you're going to actually do. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think we've also, we've started to treat gaining information on something as, as if it's 
doing something. Like that's doing the work is just reading? Usually is not. Yeah. <laughs> Usually no. Yeah. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah. Um, it's yeah, That's the version. Uh, that is like our mm-hmm. version of a corporation. Like, hey, we did a pride flag ad campaign. Okay. I mean, that might have done something. Are you hiring people who are queer? Like, like, are you paying your employees enough to live? Are you giving them maternal health care? Like, you know, like it's kind of like a version of that. So that that's the wrinkle that I would add is just like, sometimes you can do a little bit of reading and then figure Mm -hmm. out what your behaviors are going to be. And then you can feel quite good about the fact that you're aligned with those values, but you didn't have to spend weeks on it uh time yeah and and maybe you spend your time like turning over your compost pile rather than another 15 minutes on instagram right exactly which also you'll get some fresh air you'll you know exercise a little bit how much should we engage with the news i think for the vast majority of us not that much and i realize i say that as someone who gets my yeah it's your it's your You know, I think I think that frame of hobby is is useful. Um, different people have different hobbies. I think we've come to treat being up on the news as sort of like something that everyone needs to do. Like it, it's on par with going to the grocery store, right? Like going to the grocery store is not a hobby. It's just something we all do. I would challenge that and say like, no, the news is not an obligatory part of everyone's day that you need to survive. It's not like food, which everyone needs to survive. It is a hobby in a real sense. And you can have a different hobby. You can cross stitch. You can have a dog. You can have that compost pile, whatever the case may be. I would suggest that it would behoove a lot of us to stop and think like, is this actually the hobby I want? Like, are there other things that I could be doing? Because we, number one, we do live in a country with a representative government and maybe they do a terrible job of representing us. I often think they do, but the fact is that the, like the way it was designed is so that most of us, the vast majority of us delegate our political power and our like political brain space to other people. So they go do it full time. And I would include journalists in that, right? Like we think about this stuff full time so that you don't have to, it's not so that you can think about it all the time. It's that you can do other and better things. There's a quote from it's either John Adams or John Quincy Adams. One of those guys, it's something to the effect of like, I think about politics so that my sons can think about like architecture and engineering and his sons can think about art and music. Um, the idea that like we, we should be able to offload that to people and go do other things. And even if it's not working the way that we want to uh, want it to like, that is, that is still true. That it is not something that is supposed to concern all of us all the time. And so I think limiting the topics that you're really going to engage with at that informational level um, is going to do a lot of that work for you, cutting down your your news engagement to like a much more appropriate level. Um, and you brought up the issue of discipleship earlier. And I think this is part of that, like the way that we spend our time and where we put our attention really determines who we become as people. And I would suggest that for the vast majority of us who are not doing this for a living as I am, and even I have to limit my attention here, we are giving too much of ourselves and our focus to news, and we should be giving it to other and better things. Anything else you want to add about social media usage? We talked about it briefly briefly before, but 
in terms of ways forward and ways to, to sort of engage this epistemological crisis via social media? Overall, I guess everything I have to say about that is about doing it less, as you said. I, I don't think that we have to completely leave it in most cases, though sometimes that may be you know the wise thing to do. But certainly it, it needs a lot more limits than most of us have. And as we discussed at the beginning of this conversation, our incentives and the company, the social media company's incentives are really at loggerheads here. They Their whole thing is about like maximum time on the site or in the app. And I think our concern should be about like limiting time, getting getting sort of like the maximum possible benefits from those networks for the least amount of time spent. Um, and so that's, I mean, it's very difficult to do. I don't think it's possible for it to not be something of an adversarial relationship where you, you like it, but also you recognize it, you know, it's a dangerous thing and it can very easily just sort of like break your attention span and, and, and ruin your brain. The first thing for a lot of us is, is really just like inventorying our behavior around social media and, and being honest with ourselves about, in many cases, how bad it's gotten because that can ramp up quite quite quickly and quite thoroughly and you don't notice it. It, it. it is a big frog in the boiling water situation. Like the way that we use our time and our, our attention is a matter of discipleship. And that's something that a lot of pastors have brought up to me, almost in like weirdly verbatim phrasing as I was writing and researching this book. You know, this idea that they get people for an hour on Sunday, but the Facebook and, and CNN and other media get them for 20 hours a week. I think there's a, a bigger and connected issue here that I really don't get into in the book, which is about like authority, church authority. And that's such a touchy subject right now because we've had so many stories of abuses of church authority. Yeah. Um, but I do think that there is a, <laughs> there should be some degree of authority for, for, you know, a, obviously with all due qualifications, like a healthy, appropriate, loving, et cetera, church environment for the pastor to be able to say, like, you are on Twitter too much. I need you to log off, delete your account and start coming to like the Wednesday night service also. Um, and I don't think that that exists in the vast majority. No, that person would just get replaced. They anyway. would just leave. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah they, they would, either yeah, the congregant would leave or the yeah, pastor would get exactly. fired. Exactly. Somebody yeah. would leave. And yeah. I, and so, you know, maybe, maybe it doesn't need to be like, a pastor, maybe that that isn't yeah. <laughs> happening in churches right now. Yeah. But ideally, we would all have like someone in our life who would be able people to say, like, lives, you, need, yeah. "You need to delete your account." Yeah, I'm going to give people. Speaking of inventory, here's a very simple mindfulness slash awareness exercise. Open up a note on your notepad on your phone, and when you log off whatever social media you're using, just briefly go and write down how you're feeling in that moment. What what resulted from that time on that social media app? And then just do that for a week or two. See what you find. Uh, maybe, hmm. you, I don't know, you might find like, oh, when I was looking at this stuff, I felt great. I love seeing my friend's kids. But then this popped up and then I now I notice I, I get stomach aches or I feel anxious or it took me a long time to fall asleep or whatever. Like, just just take a note, open up a note, jot some stuff down, see what you find could be helpful. Anything else, uh, Bonnie, about possible ways forward here? 
so the biggest thing that I, I talk about in the book is about like building intellectual virtues and that's so things like intellectual honesty and, and studiousness and wisdom. And that's so much easier said than done. Right. What I think a lot of it comes down to is sort of like developing a, a feel for truth in the way that like you can mm. feel the difference between like cotton and polyester. We should be able to identify it at least in, in a, areas that we know about in those those limited topics that we're going to prioritize and that we're going to know about we should be able to have a have a feel for truth so that it's somewhat instinctive and that we're not gullible but also not placing unwarranted trust in in people who are out there to fool us like going back to that david french quote from the from the forward we're not like rejecting on the one hand all these institutions and then running to something worse um, I think if you have a feel for truth, you know, you may end up rejecting some institutions, but hopefully you won't end up somewhere worse. And so. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. You know, you can't just sort of sit down and say, I'm going to be intellectually virtuous. That's not how it works any more than it works with any other virtue. It's a big project. It's, It's not something I think that you can do on a mass scale. I don't think there's like a single top-down solution where if we can just moderate Twitter better or, you know, make them make the media companies go back to equal time or or for different perspectives or do enough libel lawsuits. Like all of those things have their place and can help. But I, I think as as frustrating and depressing as this may be, um, we really don't have an alternative to dealing with our own behavior and our own mindset as we're coming into, into all of this. Again, I I keep coming back to values. I just think that having it be values based is such a great hack because Mm -hmm. it is something that you can, you can tend to quantify. If you don't know what your values are, by the way, Google something like values domain worksheet. There's all kinds of stuff that will help you kind of identify these things. You can do it with a therapist. You can talk with your friends or your partner about like, what are my main values? And if it flows from that, then it has the, then you've got the juice. You have the fuel to make behavior modifications because you care about it. When something aligns up with your values, you have more energy for it naturally, right? That's just a a consequence of caring about something. And so that's maybe a wrinkle that I would add is like, is there a way to have it line up with your personal values? Because it's more effective to try and change things that are values aligned than things that, well, I think I maybe should care about that, but I don't really. Well, then you're not going to do it. Then <laughs> It's going to be yeah. like the last 20 diets I tried, right? You know, sure. if you don't really care. So we've talked a lot about generational differences and like a sense of where my parents lying the whole time about what they said they valued. I do think for those of us who have kids, this is something we should be thinking about a lot. And, you know, our children are going to grow up even more ensconced in 
like this media context than we are. Um, But at least for those of us who are parents right now, who probably have a, a decent sense of what the the pitfalls of this whole situation are like we can be much more aware of of what's going on and of what the risks to our children are and i realize i sound like you know a real luddite at this point but their their brains are more plastic than ours and they're Mm -hmm. not broken yet and like even if our brains at this point are perhaps irreparably a little bit broken like we can be more aware of of what happened to us and and take steps insofar as we can to, to keep the same thing from happening to them and basically use the frustrations and the problems that we've had to to hopefully make things better for a future generation Yeah. And they might figure a lot of that out on their own, right? Like it's easy for us to point out to boomer parents when a website is bullshit, they might more easily be able to point out confirmation bias than we are able to or something like that. It'll be interesting to see, but I I do think there is at least a growing awareness that bad things can happen when you just turn a 12 year old loose on the internet. Um, and so that that does seem like a, a sign of hope that even if people are still struggling to figure out solutions for a lot of this stuff, I do think there's an, an increasing awareness that we have a problem. Yeah. Well, Bonnie, what a fun conversation. What a great conversation. Always so succinct. There's very little wasted air. Uh, I love that <laughs> just from a from a practitioner standpoint. The book, again, it came out. October 11th. This will almost certainly come out after that. It's called Untrustworthy, the Knowledge Crisis, Breaking Our Brains, Polluting Our Politics, and Corrupting Christian Community. We'll have a link to that in the show notes, as well as a link to your Twitter handle. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thank you.